From me to Japan, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Dr. Thomas J. Buckles joins us to talk about complements to the standard model. So stay tuned for all this here on the Grok Science Show. the program. Well, for decades, the standard model has been held as the gold standard for the theory of everything, one that explains phenomena at the very small as well as the very large scales. In spite of its success in confirming experimental observations in quantum mechanics and in cosmology, there are limits to the standard model. Well, joining us today is our very special guest, Dr. Thomas J. Buckholtz, will be talking about a complementary framework to overcome these limitations. He has recently released a book on this topic, Physics Fast and Small, Complementing the Standard Model. Dr. Buckholz received his bachelor's in science from the California Institute of Technology and his PhD in physics from the University of California at Berkeley. He has also served as co-CIO of the executive branch under the first Bush administration and has introduced various innovative business practices both in Washington and high-tech industries. Dr. Buckholz, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you very much, Frank. Actually, there's an update to that. It's um, physics, small and vast, basic interactions, but uh, that's brand new. At any rate, I'm really happy to be here, and hopefully uh, we'll have a conversation that's useful for a lot of people. I think many people often refer to the standard model as the theory of everything, but apparently that's not quite true because there's a lot that's not explained. Just to give us a background, you know, what is the standard model and what are some of its flaws? The standard model is the work of quite a number of people over perhaps the last half century or so. And they put together a lot of very good physics about elementary particles and some related topics. They've unified, as the physicists would, physicist would say, electromagnetism, the strong interaction, the weak interaction. And so there's a lot that's done based on it. It, it produces a lot of good results. And yet, uh, I think most people admit uh, that it falls short in quite a number of areas. For example, during the same period and even longer, there's been an effort to try to unify, so-called unify, gravity with electromagnetism. It might seem like a very easy thing. They're both uh, the force characteristics over space are the same, and one is based on charge, the other is based on mass. Mm-hmm. And yet people have not done that quantum mechanically. And then there are a whole bunch of other things that have not uh, happened. Uh, standard model doesn't seem to address what is dark matter, what is dark energy. Uh, people worry about can we explain why there are many more um, particles that we consider matter compared to particles we consider antimatter. The standard model apparently doesn't do that. 
There are some symmetry violations that are quite well known, parity violation, charge and parity violation. And my best understanding is that standard model calculations might produce some results in this area, but are not considered to produce a magnitude big enough for the experimental results that are seen. So there's uh, a lot that has not happened in that regard over the last 50 years, and obviously one of the the big things that has happened during about the same period is uh, the discovery of effects of dark matter and dark energy. I just happened to have left the field of physics uh, as a professional uh, quite a number of years ago and then kept it as a hobby while well, I had a career that was mostly related to information technology and general management and information usage. But I kept it as a hobby, and for a while I had no idea really what I was going to try to tackle. And I would get results that seemed to make some sense in an isolated sense. And then about a few years ago, uh, all of a sudden I started to be able, I think, to explain from a theoretical standpoint, more than I had set out to explain or thought I was ever going to explain. And then some theory, uh, some basis for theory gelled. And by now, I've been able to tackle all the problems that we've talked about and propose what may be a fairly unified approach to all of it. When you say complementing the standard model, do you mean it as a way to mathematically describe the aspects that it hasn't addressed, or do you mean it more as a complete new framework? Both. Let me draw, or try to draw a parallel. I'm not really a good historian on this and other matters, but uh, I think people, a lot of people are familiar with some of the changes that went on in thinking about the perceived motion of heavenly bodies. Centuries ago, people developed methods, let's call them methods, not theories, based on epicycles. And so at some point, uh, we come to the era of Copernicus, who's working with these epicycles and has the great idea that maybe uh, it would be better if one put the sun at the center of the picture one was thinking about instead of trying to leave the earth at the center. And he, I understand, was able, by doing that, to get some simplicity and clarity into something that it sort of run its course and was very complicated. But at the same time, it was still a method, and indeed, epicycles continue to be useful. Sometime later, Kepler came along, and after some other approaches to trying to predict uh, the diameters of planetary orbits and so forth through geometric shapes, eventually came up with the idea that planets moved in ellipses around the sun and that elliptical orbits in general were appropriate and important. And then it took uh, quite a while longer and for Newton to come up with a theory of gravity that could then be used to explain elliptical orbits. So here's a transition from a complex method that is losing its ability to do new things through an intermediate method and then on to eventually a theory that uh, underlies new method. And of course, we rely on that theory today, for example, to land things very precisely on planet Mars. So I think I've gone through somewhat the similar sort of thing. Um, maybe the standard model has kind of run its course, maybe not. I actually suggest some ways to extend it a bit. 
But I've been able to start from an entirely different basis. Standard model is very much based on something called Lagrangian physics. Mine is based on some new thoughts about how to use harmonic oscillator physics. And I've been able to, I think, address many of these uh, issues that we talked about earlier. But I've also come up with another way to look at what I've found, and that is that we can probably think about reusing standard model results. So one of the uh, symmetries that comes out of all the stuff I've done suggests that maybe there are in an extended version of the universe 48 clones of the standard model, and in this case, standard model means the particles and the physics that people talk about. So the stuff that we see and the stars that we see are one of these clones. Five of them are what we consider to be dark matter, and if you're tracking the math, what you want to do is track from one to six, which is the totality of one plus five, and then 18 more of these are what... Uh, people consider to be dark energy. So we've gone from 1 to 6 to 24, actually in two steps, uh, 1 to 6 to 12 to 24, but that's a subtle deal. Skip. And then it turns out in part of what I've done, uh, it looks like there should be 48. Uh, the math comes out that way. The math also indicates that there probably aren't any forces of interaction between the 24 that we would be part of and the 24, I call these things ensembles, the 24 ensembles that are the other 24. And so we're left with possibility of thinking about a universe. Should we talk about 24 or should we talk about 48? But at any rate, uh, that's one of the pieces of thinking there. And while it doesn't directly extend the standard model, it indicates that the results of the standard model produce may be applicable 24 or 48 times as opposed to the one time that we're used to. So when you refer to these 24 ensembles, are they simply mathematical constructs or do they exist in the same space-time but are not accessible to each other? Well, what comes out of all of this is uh, the following. The new book is called Basic Interactions, and the focus really is on interactions between particles uh, mm -hmm. carried by bosons, uh, linking fermions, the usual physics sort of thing. Nothing's terribly new there. What I've tried to figure out is what is the interaction space that I'm actually trying to deal with, and how does it link to space-time, and how does it link to the traditional tangent space called energy-momentum space that physicists talk about. So some of the work that I do seems to be rooted in space-time uh, very much and has some very interesting implications for space-time. Most of the work seems to be a little bit closer in thought to thinking in terms of energy-momentum space. So it, there's unresolved issues here, but uh, I don't think they're a fundamental problem at all. So you, you've asked a very good question uh, as to how this fits together. The other 24 ensembles, are they just mathematical conventions or are they physical realities? This is going to be an interesting question because if there are no forces or interactions that connect those 24 with our 24, then this almost becomes a piece of philosophy. It may be, of course, uh, as we see how physics evolves, that first of all, if, this, if what I've come up with uh, turns out to be useful and 
accepted and, and real, in effect, then um, we tend to find later that uh, assumptions aren't quite right, and so maybe there will be a way to uh, someone will figure out forces that do connect these. Or it's possible that maybe at the uh, very earliest stages of the Big Bang there was some sort of inhomogeneity, and eventually we will find evidence of that and say, even with a much more robust physics, we have no way to explain it other than something else was uh, involved in the Big Bang. So uh, I really don't know. Uh, we're off, at least for the moment, in a realm of philosophy. So it, it seems you're, you're doing pretty uh, exciting work. What are some of the leading thinkers in this field doing? I mean, are there any novelties that's worth discussing? For example, if Stephen Hawking is doing or Roger Penrose? I'm going to uh, pass on this question. Uh, it has not been a focus of mine to follow some of these things in enough detail mm -hmm. to say something of value to the people who may be listening. The last couple of years have been completely, uh, from a, uh, an intense hobby standpoint, devoted to this piece of research. And I do, though I do see some things that might dovetail with some topics that I've heard about. For example, there is a, a little branch off in, in the work about what the uh, possible spins for black holes might be. And it turns out that assuming this branch, which is not terribly essential to anything I've done, but assuming one follows that branch and believes in it, uh, then a uh, black hole would not have a spin of one. It could have a spin of a half. It could have an integer spin uh, of two or three in terms of h-bar, any integer above one. But one would not be allowed. And I, my understanding is that Hawking has uh, some thoughts about, and other people have some thoughts about, photons near black holes and, fo and so forth. So there might be an overlap here, but I have not really looked at it. You know, last year uh, there was a lot of excitement over the discovery of the Higgs boson, and even for technical people, those concepts are still very abstract. Can you, you know, briefly describe what it is and what it means in terms of some of these standard model theories? Let me actually take it from the perspective of what I've done, and uh, that may answer some of the uh, type of question that you uh, have posed. It turns out that before sort of concrete announcement, yes, we have found the Higgs boson, that I had done a few things uh, in the path to where this theory is now. And one of them is that I had been able to place uh, through the mathematics, the Higgs boson in the same family as the traditional weak interaction bosons, namely the Z boson and the 2W bosons. And indeed, I had gotten far enough to predict a mass for the Higgs boson. And as far as I know, I think uh, it's coming out exactly there. The mass is a multiple of the mass of the Z boson. The multiple is the square root of 17 over 9. And so my error in prediction is um, equivalent to the error in prediction or the error of measurement of the Z boson. And I think that uh, that uh, number 
has proven to be the current best estimate. So there was actually a prediction here, although it's now old. It turns out that some of the harmonic oscillator-related math that is in the background of all of this also extends this family. I call it the W family, W for weak interaction. And it extends in the other direction, um, if you look at a chart in uh, what I've done, from the Higgs boson. The Higgs boson's at one level. The Z and W bosons are the next level. The Higgs boson has spin zero. The Z and W bosons have spin one in units of h-bar. And the harmonic oscillator math predicts exactly one more level of this stuff. So there would be five particles. They would have spin two. One would have no charge. And in a guess, and I do make guesses in this work, and I do list the guesses, the guesses are that uh, two of these particles have spin one-third, plus and minus one-third, I'm sorry, charge plus and minus one-third, and two of them have uh, charge plus two-thirds and minus two-thirds. Now, those charges are well known in, in physics. Those are charges associated with quarks. And so all of a sudden, I've discovered potentially a new class of weak interaction particles, and, or at least predicted them. And these actually become integral in uh, my story as to how uh, parity violation and charge parity violation occur. And they become integral in the story as to why there's so much more, quote unquote, matter in our ensemble than there is antimatter. In fact, what happens is that the uh, charge plus and minus two-thirds uh, W family bosons actually connect with the five dark matter ensembles and can carry charge back and forth. So while there's overall conservation of charge in the six ensembles that we consider to be ourselves plus dark matter, uh, charge can move back and forth. And in the process of that moving back and forth, probably with a sort of laser-like activity of these uh, fractional charge W family bosons early in the Big Bang, then uh, it would be very likely that we would get the matter-antimatter imbalance. I can't predict an, an amount of matter-antimatter imbalance. I don't have a strength for that force, other than it's obviously very much weaker than the normal weak interaction that we talk about. But it all fits together. I'm just looking at the cover of your book here, and it's a pretty intriguing picture on the front. Can you perhaps um, elaborate on it a little bit? Yeah, so actually the picture comes from exactly what's going on here. Uh, one side of the picture is the physics small part of physics small and vast, and it's actually a little periodic table uh, uh, that puts into an orderly fashion the electron, the other couple of uh, leptons, the quarks, uh, in a periodic table that actually, like the periodic table for the elements, is based on mass. And one of the things that was early in this work that we haven't talked about is I came up with an approximate formula that links the masses of all these things. And going for all this, uh, the 
the uh, charged standard model uh, particles, and I'm sorry, standard model fermions, and gives me a way by looking at other places in the table to predict some possible neutrino masses, so I actually give some candidates. Some of the concepts sounds like something you would see from Star Trek or one of these science fiction movies. Do you see any parallels between this work and, you know, stuff you see in the popular media? Let me give a few popular media interpretations. First of all, the way the forces work out and so forth, being dark matter to somebody is a reciprocal relationship. So to the extent there are physics-savvy beings in the five ensembles that we consider to be dark matter, those folks would consider us to be their dark matter. And to the extent there are physics-savvy beings in the 18 ensembles that we would consider to be dark energy, uh, they would consider us to be part of their dark energy. So I'm able, from a sort of popular science standpoint, to say, look around you, see what you see, you are looking at dark matter, you are looking at dark energy, it just turns out it's not what we consider to be dark matter or dark energy, it's what somebody else, if, they, if there are those other beings, would consider. Now, some of the stuff in Star Trek and so forth, uh, very much in, in science fiction, deals with can we travel faster than the speed of light. We know that the quarks do not exist alone in ways we can observe them. I think there's a reasonable cause to start to think about standalone quarks as things that might be a reasonable concept and that would travel faster than the speed of light, but we can't detect them that way. So there's the possibility of starting to think about a different uh, concern about space-time. It would be on a scale of atomic nuclei and smaller uh, for practical purposes, we're not going to get uh, time travel out of this as far as I can tell. <laughs> but it, it does actually, uh, there are some very interesting questions raised at uh, in a size of about 10 to the minus 15 to 10 to the minus 18 meters. And uh, some a lot of significance to that size. A size that has lost importance in what I've done although still has some validity, is the Planck length. I don't come up with space-time froth at that length, but I do come up with significant physics at lengths that are considerably smaller, uh, perhaps as small as 10 to the minus 79 to 10 to the minus 100 meters. Uh, some of those numbers come up in two different ways in this. I, I don't think we want to go into details on that. <laughs> But it, it does it does seem to make sense, and um, obviously, uh, for those who know a little bit, there's no string theory in what I did. So you, you know, you just mentioned um, faster than light particles. You know, one of the the issues that's been raised over the years is is the question of is the speed of light constant? Um, under your model, is the speed of light constant, or is it variable depending on the environment? I really have no answer to that. There was no reason for me to consider a variable speed of light in what I did, so I can't say that I've added to the body of knowledge around that. What I can say, though, is in looking at some of the math, that 
it might be reasonable to ask about gluons, which have no mass, whether there's a different speed other than the speed of light that one would consider that gluons uh, propagate at. I Again, I have no reason to advocate one way or the other in that. Uh, it's just that uh, there was a, a place where I could guess that the two speeds are the same. And again, I, I don't want to get people too excited about the idea of faster than light. This is all quantum mechanical something. Uh, there's no classical <laughs> all quantum mechanical interactions, and uh, I think a lot of people might get a little bit alarmed at uh, this aspect of it. But it's one of these things that people can look at and eventually uh, come to some sort of uh, conclusion as to what's going on. Well, it's, it's been a really good uh, discussion today. I guess we are running a little bit out of time. Uh, are, are there any last words you'd like to add about uh, your work or yourself? Well, I'd like to add a request to people who hear this, that they think about people who might be interested in all of this, because this really has been an almost in-isolation effort, and it really needs uh, people, I think, to look at it. Maybe they will find out that uh, a good deal of this is junk. I don't think so, but uh, it is, it's a new approach. It's a new math that ought to be looked at, and it's new results. But I need people, I would like people to look at it. I'd like criticism. I'd like colleagues to work with to see if we can extend it. There are all kinds of implications, perhaps, for nuclear physics, which we haven't had a chance to talk about, and maybe solidifying or redoing the shell model that comes out of some of this, although I haven't pursued it at all. And in general, I think it, it, it would be very nice uh, if a lot of people looked at it, if it either gains traction because it has merit or it gets uh, no traction because it has no merit. But at the moment, it has no traction or very little traction because uh, very few people know about it. And it, it just it, it needs now people involved. And I really would request people to try to contact me or get the book and see what we can do with it. And what will be the best way to contact you, and where could um, people buy this book? Okay, well, I think uh, a single point of contact here is I do have a website, and if you have time, I will spell it out. It's a WordPress.com website. It's Thomas J. Bockholtz, so T-H-O-M-A-S-J-B-U-C-K-H-O-L-T-Z at WordPress.com. And my email address is there. My phone number here in Silicon Valley is on there. And as long as you don't call when I'm asleep, I'd be very happy uh, to talk. Probably the best thing to do is to send an email. Uh, one of the pages on that site, the site is not actually devoted to, uh, primarily to physics. It's devoted to something else I do. But if you look in the upper right corner, there's a page. There's a list of the few pages on the site. One of them is mathematical physics. And on that page, there is a list of the major findings. There is a link to the book. There is a link to a free uh, download for the first part of the book. There's a link to a free download for approximately 40-some-odd percent of the real content of the book, including detailed summary, a list of guesses, and so forth. So there's quite a bit there. Dr. Bachholz, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure having you on this program today. 
Frank, thank you so much for having me on your program. And we were just talking to Dr. Thomas J. Buckholz on compliments to the Standard Model. His new book, Physics Fast and Small, Basic Interactions, is now available online and on Amazon. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. To check us out on the web, go to www.groks.net. You can email us at science at groks.net. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music. <laughs>